0: I'm Ivy Juiva, and this is Future of Food. Among runners, Scott Jurek is a living legend. He's claimed victory in nearly all of ultra running's elite trail and road events. He won the Western States 100-mile endurance run, a record of seven straight times. In 2015, he set the Appalachian Trail speed record, averaging nearly 50 miles a day over 46 days. Scott follows a 100% plant-based diet, which he credits for his endurance, recovery after runs, and consistent 20-year racing career. I hope you're as inspired as I was by this conversation with running legend, Scott Jurek. Well, Scott, it's so wonderful to have you on Future of Food today. You are truly a living legend I just, uh, reading about these races you do, I can't even wrap my mind around the mental stamina, the physical stamina, just the, the it's super, superhuman level stuff.
1: I don't know if I'm quite superhuman, but I guess uh, (laughs) if it sounds like that, I know for some people it definitely seems like ultramarathoning is uh, a bit superhuman, but um, I'm just a normal guy like everyone else, as most people will will find out here in a bit.
0: Yeah, I'm just so curious at what drives you. I mean, 50 miles a day for 46 days on the Appalachian Trail. You share about this in your book, North. For listeners, can you just help us understand like, what possesses you to undertake that kind of a feat?
1: Well, I guess it's, it's always been something that I've had in the back of my mind. I had you know, 20 plus years of ultra marathon racing, anything from just beyond the marathon at 50 kilometers, which is 31 miles up to a hundred miles plus. And I'd been doing that for so many years. And I had friends of mine say, you know, wait, wait to do the really big stuff, like the multi-days where you're out pushing ultra marathons day after day for weeks and weeks, even uh, a month or more. And I still had this fascination of doing a long trail, one of our national scenic trails. I spent a lot of time on the Pacific Crest Trail. I had buddies set records on the Appalachian Trail and the Pacific Crest Trail. And because I was a big fan of lightweight backpacking and and backpacking in general, it just was something that always fascinated me. So in terms of like the next level, I saved it towards the end of my career. And the, the big, I guess, push or the big, Enticing piece was the idea of covering a vast amount of the country that I've lived in and traveled and raced in, but hadn't spent a lot of time. And that's that's one thing that the Appalachian Trail was going to provide. I I hadn't spent hardly any time in the Appalachian Mountains. I'd done a couple of Ultras, one in Vermont, a couple in Virginia. And it was, um, yeah, it was something completely new to push me. And my wife and I needed that adventure just uh, personally and for the things that were going on in our life. And it seemed like something we should do. And we needed to uh, get out in the woods. We went for it.
0: Well, wow. So tell us a little bit about what you gained from that journey.
1: Yeah, it's hard to put into words what I experienced and and what I gained from that journey. Um, it's one of those things that, you know, I wrote a book about it. And Jenny and I both, you know, went through this whole writing process, which is very cathartic and, and just thinking about you know what what did I learn? And you'd think after um five years I would be able to tell you this very succinct answer. And I think, you know, one of the biggest things that surprised me or one of the biggest things that I've learned is when I've gone to those really difficult, hard, deep, dark places, such as doing something like the Appalachian Trail, where every day there's these extreme highs and extreme lows and it seems like it's just not going to happen not going to get through it i find a way through to the other side and i think that's that's what's probably one of the biggest things i've i've always felt like okay this is going to be one of my biggest tests this is going to be you know the biggest challenge you know will i have something more left to give and that's that's one thing that this adventure and this athletic feet was a test of like going to the edge. And just when I think I thought I got to the ultimate edge, there was another challenge out on the trail, or there was another day that was even harder than the previous. And just when I thought I had, had gone to like my personal edge, physically, mentally, spiritually, there was still something else out there. And there was still another realm to explore. And that that's the thing that I guess fascinates me with the sport of ultra running and, and the sport of something like through hiking and speed records on long trails like the Appalachian Trail, and it, it just tests um, the body, mind, and soul in ways that are hard to replicate. And I think that's that's what uh, it's being human is is really testing endurance. We as humans are endurance beings, and enduring is something that we have to do on a daily basis, whether we're out struggling on the Appalachian Trail or we're getting through you know, the challenges mentally, physically uh, on in a day-to-day basis. And that's no more uh, apparent than in the world we live in right now, which is seem like uh, it's turned upside down and, and things are very difficult and challenging. And there's just always something new around the corner yeah. that's happening.
0: It really is such an interesting time in history because you're right. On the one hand, stress seems like it's potentially at an all-time high, just in terms of the bombardment of media we have and social stress and the constant kind of go, go, go mentally of technology. But at the same time, we live such comfortable lives in a certain sense, in the sense that most of us have running water. We put our clothes in a machine to wash them, put our dishes in a machine to wash them, you know, get in our cars to go places. So you've talked about this benefit of, that you've experienced of being uncomfortable and you've talked about how you feel like that like connects us with our roots as humans. Um, so to, to someone who that may sound crazy, help us, help us understand like how, how is this a benefit to be uncomfortable?
1: Well, it's very true. I, like you said, we, especially in, I'm not saying, you know, right now people are definitely, and you know, myself included, you know, work is <laughs> definitely turned sideways. Um, the stuff I do for a living, I'm not able to do. And that th- there are those extreme challenges for sure right now. And, But in general, when I look at when we look at history and what humans have accomplished, and if we you know just read any biography or autobiography of somebody who has it more difficult than ourselves, you start to realize like wow you know the the ability to get out of uncomfortable situations or the the ability to survive endure is something that's innate in humans. And yes, I feel like we have to almost nowadays. Create challenges that push us because life has become very comfortable. We get to control the temperature of our homes with you know a touch of a button or a turn of a dial. Um, we can become you know we can be in a place in a matter of minutes. We can be across the country in hours, and all these things that we sometimes take for granted used to take a lot of physical, mental challenge. And I think that's that's the biggest, I guess, reason for doing something like this too is that I. I think being uncomfortable, challenging ourselves, this idea of elective suffering or chosen uh, challenge is is something that I talk about with all my buddies, whether they're climbers or they're mountaineers, they're runners, um, you name it, just athletes or even artists, for that matter. um, People who challenge themselves mentally, um, certain jobs and professions that are very physically and uh, mentally demanding on a day-to-day basis where life and death matter. um, These are all examples of the human um, psyche desiring these things, even though like at the time, (laughs) sometimes I question myself, like, why am I doing this? And a lot of people out there, you know, whether they're just getting off the couch and, you know, going for that walk that they didn't think they could do, or say they challenge themselves to, you know, eat better or focus on an aspect of their lifestyle and, and move in a healthier direction it's hard work and it's not easy. And there's a lot of times where we question like, Oh, I could just be you know, comfortable at home on the couch. Why do I need to do this? And um, there is a benefit. And after all the struggle, we can look back at it and realize like that w- those were amazing times. I mean, I look back at some of the, the hardest and most difficult days on the AT when Jenny and I were both struggling mentally and just at the end of what we it was just frayed on all edges. I I feel like those were amazing times too. I look back at them fondly, even though at the moment it was like, why am I doing this? This is stupid. Um, (laughs) I've done that. You'd think after 20 years of doing this stuff, I'd be, you know, well aware that I don't need to have those thoughts in my head, but we're only human. And I think that's, that's very natural. So for everyone out there listening, who hasn't done ultra marathons, it can be, everybody has their own level of challenge and their own, level of being uh, uncomfortable. And it's just a matter of getting out there and, and pushing those envelopes. And as you get to your own edge, what you think is possible, there's there's always something that lies out there further.
0: So are you saying it's kind of like as you push your edges intentionally, you build this reserve of strength that makes life, just enhances life overall?
1: Definitely. And I think it prepares me for life's challenges. I, and likewise life challenges have pre- prepared me for doing these athletic feats of, you know, running ultramarathons day after day after day, like on the Appalachian trail or running a hundred mile race or running around a one mile loop for 24 hours uh, for 165 miles. These, these are all, these are all like, you know, I chose to do those things, but then the life experiences that I gained. And I think, a lot of people who would talk about say a very challenging time in their life, it made them, you know, whether it made them stronger, whether it opened their mind to possibilities, um, despite all the say, you know, suffering and discomfort and struggle that went on, we as humans, I think, come out the other side better, um, and more equipped to handle life and the challenges that it presents, not just say on the field or out in the mountains and challenging ourselves athletically, but those everyday struggles and the challenges of, you know, whether it's a chronic disease or whether it's the loss of family or, you know, just a lot of things can come up and we can't prepare for those things, but we can challenge our mind and our body and our soul, uh, in other ways. And I think that's where ultra endurance events, uh, that's, that's what they've been for me. And everyone has their own vehicle for that exploration um, and challenge. Uh, For me, I, I happen to (laughs) love running long distances and it's a simple, uh, it's a simple uh, pursuit. You don't need a lot, um, you know, a pair of running shoes and you can just head out the door and some people don't even use running shoes. So it's, it's just a matter of, again, finding those things that give you um, that personal challenge.
0: So, Obviously, I get why you need to train your way into ultra running. But why a slow transition into veganism?
1: Well, for me, I wanted to, it was a big shift for me. I grew up as a hunting and fishing boy in northern Minnesota. I grew up on a meat and potatoes type of diet. My mother was always cooking. Um, you know, it's, meat was the center of the plate. We would have a vegetable, um, and then maybe some potatoes, but definitely meat was the center. So for me, it really, I wanted to make sure I was learning along the way. And I gave myself that leeway to slowly transition instead of just going a hundred percent vegan. Um, initially I'm just try, trying to understand this new diet. And it was a big shift for me. And, It took a year and a half, and I think for a lot of people, some people can just go like all in and a hundred percent. They're they're one day you know full fledged uh, vegetarian or vegan. But for me, I gradually you know weaned off of the red meat, went to the chicken and fish, and then eventually just doing fish and some dairy. Um, And then of course, when I went when decided to to go fully vegan, it was a big transition because I still had cheese and and some of these dairy products in my diet, and it definitely for me was such a big shift. I was also, as an athlete and somebody who is trying to perform, I, I was definitely a bit worried. And I think for a lot of people in that, I was. it was 1999 when I went fully vegan, so it was the late 90s when I was trying this. It was really just a matter of me, I guess, trusting myself. And also, there's, there weren't a lot of people out there. I mean, you, you heard of these big superstars, whether it was Carl Lewis, who had been vegetarian. Uh, I heard of Martino Natravalova, there were some of these stories out there, but when it was like day-to-day people that I knew in my running groups or in the sport specifically, there weren't many people that were even vegetarians. So going fully vegan was was such a big leap and not having too many role models, so to speak. I had to trust that this was working and yeah, just wanted to give myself. I didn't want that pressure. And I mean, to be honest, I mentioned this in Eat and Run. I literally was, you know, a week out from the biggest race of my life, my first Western States 100 mile race in 1999. And I had just gone vegan in January and it was June. And six months later, I'm still doubting the diet. And I thought at one point, you know, should I get a slab of salmon or should I go and get, you know, a slab of meat just to make sure I was going to have what I needed for that race. So it was a big leap for me. And I think that's, um, a testament of how much, uh, stereotypes and just these myths that have evolved over time and just been ingrained in people that you need meat, you need animal products to perform or to maintain optimal health and we know that's not the case and there's there's more and more examples there's more research now you know it may not be the only great diet out there, but it's definitely um for me been a been a great path
0: so what would your advice be to someone who is I mean, I think your whole philosophy about pushing us to our outside our comfort zones kind of begs the question, is vegetarianism just another one of those things for you? Like Because I think a lot of people think of vegetarianism that way as something that's like, Ugh, why would I do that to myself when I could eat a nice rich steak?
1: Oh, definitely. I mean, it's definitely a challenge for me. It was something, again, I, I was doubting even after a year and a half of of trying to go vegetarian and then to vegan. And so I think for a lot of people, it is, it is something that pushed me out of my comfort zone. I I like to say, you know, I was, I was doing two extreme things. I mean, (laughs) I was, uh, I don't know, like I was doubly crazy in some people's eyes probably because here I am, you know, running these long ultra marathons and I'm also, you know, a vegan. So I had two strikes against me on the, just the, the chart of a little bit, uh, Little bit loco or a little bit uh more wacko, um but I think that's the the benefit there is you know following a plant based diet has has really helped focus my attention on my diet and performance and how diet plays a role in that, and not just you know oh, if I eat this, I will all of a sudden become stronger or faster it, It's not like that, and I think for me, it was a real focused decision on long term health, and so what I would say to other people is that. It is a big jump and it is a big leap. And anytime we shift um, a major lifestyle piece, whether it's diet or exercise or you know, decreasing stress or you know, tr- you know, de- uh, minimizing psychological. Struggle or stress; those are all elements that are definitely a big shakeup. So, I think the biggest thing is knowing like what the benefits are. And for me, I shifted to a plant-based diet because I was looking for that long-term health picture. I was working in hospitals, seeing what my patients were eating as a physical therapy student, and later as a physical therapist. Thinking to myself, I've got to look at this differently, and and just seeing like the lack of focus on nutrition, and with having my mother somebody who struggled with multiple sclerosis for over 30 years and seeing that a young age a chronic disease really had taken its toll on a family and an individual like my mother who was in the prime of her life it really made me want to search and so i started reading books about healing and optimal health and dr andrew weil was one of my like these inspirational figures and and somebody who i just loved reading his books and so i think for people out there it's it helps to have that support and having these inspirational figures, sometimes it's a friend or a family member who has been following a certain lifestyle or, um, you know, a a certain pattern that you want to take on. These are all benefits or it's that book or it's that article we read that really helps, you know, give us a little bit more confidence because it is a big leap for a lot of people to shift something like diet. And especially for athletes like myself, like shifting my diet and not expecting huge performance gains but later there were. And I think that's the beauty of it. I was looking at at a long-term health reason and it became this thing for me. It was a longevity in my career. I wanted to be running later in my life. And I started realizing all the benefits that a plant-based diet can, can, can bring, such as decreased recovery times and being able to rebound from workouts and the consistency of those workouts and recovery is really critical for what I do.
0: Well, you are certainly that inspiration and role model for anyone aspiring to a plant-based diet. I guess I'm curious in terms of recovery because you've you've been vegetarian for many years now. How do you make that comparison to the way things were before?
1: It was definitely unexpected for me. So, I saw those very much on a day-to-day basis where I, you know, felt like I had more energy. I noticed decreased recovery times between workouts. And again, you know, maybe it wasn't just a hundred percent, the plant-based diet, um, maybe because I was eating more fruits and vegetables. And this is the other thing that I think, and I'll be very frank because I know some people will try to pick apart, uh, there's, you know, been some recent, uh, I guess conflict right now with the with the film that I'm in the documentary game changers and a lot of people will say oh it, you know diet isn't everything and for sure you have to train you have to do a number of things but if your diet doesn't support the training and if you're not maintaining one of the pieces of health which is diet um you can get away with it for a while but for me I noticed right away and then I noticed you know when I look back like 10 years later into my competitive years, a lot of people have their five to six years of peak performance and mine just kept being extended. And I think that's, that's the beauty is that it's not so much like you notice the day-to-day effects of the recovery times, getting less, the body feeling more stronger, um, better adaptable to the stresses placed on it. But again, it's more of like that long-term shift. And that's, that's the big thing too, is that eating because the diet focuses It focused me to get more fruits and vegetables, whole grains, uh, legumes, all of the things that whether you eat plants only or you eat an omnivorous diet, we know we should be eating more plants and more plant food. And if somebody's doing that, say, on an omnivorous diet, they probably could get some of those similar effects. But if they're eating heavily processed uh, meat and some of the things that we know can cause cancer... Can cause disease it 's not great for an athlete um, or anyone expecting performance so it, it really comes down to like quality of diet again you can still <laughs> you can still be vegan or plant based and have a terrible diet. You can drink soda, you can eat tons of sugar, um, unhealthy oils uh, hydrogenate oils so that 's not necessarily a, a healthy plant based diet but if you 're focused on whole foods um, whole plant foods you 're going to see the return on you know performance as well as just long-term health, so I think that's a key thing to, to get across and again, I'm not saying um, you know, a plant plant-based, plant-based diet isn't superior. I think it is an incredible diet for long-term health and performance, but I think sometimes we'll pick it apart and say, oh well you know you could eat small amounts of meat and still get the same effects if you ate a lot of plant food And that's one thing we know for sure is that you know across the board, no one will argue that you need to eat more plant food to be healthy and to avoid disease and maintain performance.
0: Yeah, and it also depends on what plant food, right? Because, like, I'm curious to get into the nitty-gritty of, like, how do you fuel yourself for these incredible athletic events? Um, You know, I think the question on everybody's mind is protein. How do you get enough protein? And you've said that we actually shouldn't be so concerned about protein as vegetarians. It's more about getting enough fat. So kind of walk us through how you handle those energy demands. Yeah.
1: And so um, I will say this uh, in terms of the the fat uh, statement that I made for me as an ultra endurance athlete, I need to get enough calories throughout the day, much like somebody who's involved in bodybuilding or building a lot of uh, lean muscle mass uh, in those sports as well. Calories are everything. So you want to maintain your caloric level. And when you're eating like myself, anywhere from four to 6,000 calories a day at the peak, of my training, it's, it's one of those things where as long as I'm not just eating straight junk food, I'm getting enough protein. Um, if I'm eating enough legumes, if I'm eating enough whole grains, if I'm eating enough, uh, you know, nuts and seeds and other things, if you eating a wide range, um, really there shouldn't be worry that I would be getting enough amino acids and protein. And again, that's because I'm eating a high amount of calories. Now, if you're somebody who's just eating 2,000 calories or less a day, 1,500 calories, you can run into a serious protein deficit if you're just eating salads and avoiding whole grains and legumes, um, any type of soy products such as tofu or tempeh, you could run into you know, a major issue. But for athletes who are consuming higher amounts of calories, so let's say in the 3,000 plus range it would be very hard not to get enough protein. Again, unless you're just eating junk food and processed food that is high in sugars and fats. But for me, the biggest issue, if I wanted to increase the amount of calories per day, I would need to up my fat intake. So avocados, getting enough um, healthy fats, olive oil, olives, nut butters. These were things that I've incorporated during my peak training. Now, Today, when I haven't you know run for three or four hours, um, would I eat large amounts of fat? Probably not. Um, you want to. For me, I want to get enough healthy fats through, especially monosaturated fats like olives or olive oil, things like essential fatty acids from flaxseed and flax oil, those kind of things. But again, it's it's limited based on activity level. So I just want to make that clear too. So somebody shouldn't start <laughs> eating tons of fat um, because, as we know, fat every every uh, gram of fat contains nine calories. So, you know, definitely whether it's a, a weight balancing issue, um, whether you're trying to maintain weight, increase weight, or decrease your body weight, fat will definitely get you there quickest when it comes to, you know, upping uh, caloric intake. And, and that's for me as an athlete, it was really key. And to answer your question on protein, of course, everyone wants to know that even though I feel like <laughs> there's a lot of information nowadays that we get plenty of protein throughout our diets. Um, there's a lot of argument of like how much we should get, you know, the world health organization recommends that we get somewhere between seven to 8%. Uh, you'll see the U S guidelines, uh, being on the higher side of, you know, more in the anywhere from 10 to 15%, sometimes 20%, whether you're following a high protein diet. So, and, and, and on up, but in general, if you're, trying to hit numbers within a reasonable range, even at the 10, 12% uh, of your daily intake, very easy to do with a plant-based diet. And for me, I do that through whole grains, beans, legumes, soy products like tempeh, tofu, Occasionally, I'll have some seitan, which is a, a wheat uh, based uh, condensed protein. But again, I do some condensed protein sources like tempeh tofu, mm-hmm. but of course, a lot of beans and whole grains. Uh, sprouted grain breads are great too for upping the, the protein level. Mm-hmm. Things like edamame, which is a, a soy bean that's uh, green. Anybody who's had uh, sushi or been to a Japanese restaurant will probably have edamame for the first time. And these are great sources that, again, Quite dense in protein that you can get, and then as long as you're doing some nuts and seeds uh, for me, I try to do that as well and then when i'm training heavily, i'll incorporate some pea protein brown rice protein in my smoothies to to bump things up a little bit more
0: like protein powders
1: yes, protein powders, yeah, so um pea protein and brown rice protein powders, uh, some hemp protein powders uh as well, so seeds and um and also Things like brown rice and legumes can be condensed and you can get powders. And again, I try to get most of my protein through whole food sources, but we'll use some pea and brown rice protein powders, occasionally like a a fermented soy protein powder. Try to avoid the real heavy, isolated uh, soy protein powders.
0: Yeah, soy is so controversial. And, you know, you see a lot written about there's kind of a myth that's become a, a whole cultural myth around if you eat soy, it's gonna turn you into a woman. That's kind of like the extreme version. So help us debunk that for once and for all about the soy. Do you have any concerns about growing breasts or <laughs> having <laughs> Cause you're you're a big fan of tofu and tempeh, right?
1: Definitely. And I, I'm gonna say this and there's plenty of research out there for people that wanna find you know, the research that supports it. Um, most of it has actually been in the other direction, especially for women in terms of improving estrogen levels and uh, actually preventing things like breast cancer and, and some of the things that people worry about. But um, from a male side of things, there's no research. Again, it's one of these myths, much like, you know, meat, like you have to have meat to be strong. I mean, we've been fed that through advertisements. We've been, we've been told that from, you know, in the early days and Fayette and, uh, you know, physical education and health and all these things we had, at least for me in the, the 70s and 80s, we were always told like, oh, you've got to have meat and all the, the stuff that has come out. We know that's just been mainly, you know, put out there because it's, it's been good for business. So when it comes to food, there's a lot of information. And I think soy is just one of those examples of people freaking out about, oh, I'm gonna, you know, get too much estrogen in my body. And, and we know in, you know, Moderate amounts and sensible amounts. There, there's really no, been no cases of people overdosing and, and causing their body to shift in an estrogen-heavy um, format. Um, in fact, like I said, if you look at the research, most of it has been positive in terms of preventing things, uh, particularly breast cancer in women. So with soy, I think the biggest thing with soy is avoiding the really heavily processed soy products out there, and and that goes to any product out whether you know it's a, another type of food. We know you want to stay close to the whole form and tempeh and tofu are actually very much whole foods they're processed soy in the fact that they're cooked they're blended they're fermented and i think these are things you just have to look at the populations that did eat them whether it's you know japanese or you know the chinese uh the Indone- Indone- indonesians uh, when it comes to tempeh these are foods that have been staples in their diets for hundreds if not thousands of years so um I really, you know, we, when people want to like use, you know, research and look at what people have been doing in real life for you know hundreds of years, these are things that again, should not be avoided. Um, should you just have piles of, you know, tofu on your plate? Probably not. But again, you're not trying to, you know, I, I've never seen somebody want to get 50, 60 grams of protein of temp, you know, tempeh or tofu in a meal. Um, so, and again, there's been no research saying that that would be toxic or, or cause some kind of hormonal imbalance.
0: Would you include a concern about genetically modified soy in the processed category?
1: So yeah, definitely in that. I mean, I didn't want to open that can of worms, but when it comes to um, soy, soy is definitely, and, you know, the funny thing is people who eat, you know, meat and most meat, unless they're eating grass-fed beef, um, we feed it to A lot of meat sources, chicken, cattle, um, pigs, soy is fed in high quantities. So, in reality, when you're eating these animals, uh, you're getting a lot of soy. And usually, those are, like you mentioned, uh, genetically modified because they produce it in high quantities and high yield situations. And these are also things to avoid when it comes to heavily processed soy, whether it's soy isolates, but the the genetically modified um, issue is definitely a big issue with soy because it is one of the the most genetically modified foods out there. Um, again, because we feed it in such large quantities to usually livestock and other animals. And then what has been happening in like the processed food realm when everybody was worried about oh we got to get more protein um, a great way to do that is to you know grind it up, um, isolate it, and put it into you know chips and crackers and. Everything uh, processed, I mean, there used to be soy and everything. Now it's gotten better. Um the other issue too is like soy oil. Um, soy is also a, a great, can be a healthy fat source. Um, but when you, again, extract it and condense it, it becomes... Um, soy oil. And uh, most of the time it's hydrogenated um, because it's a very stable fat. And it's one that was very cheap, uh, again, because it's probably linked and connected to how it's manufactured in quantities for uh, other uses, uh, particularly feeding other animals and other food sources. So yeah, it's a sticky issue and not to get into food politics, but I think it's a prime example of one of these things that, you know, you may want to avoid when it's heavily processed or when it's genetically modified or when it's been you know, fed to, to animals. And so we're, yeah, it's, it's one of the, I guess, hot, hot issues. And it's interesting. It got twisted more on the fact that soy is bad in all forms, because again, it's not, I mean, miso is an amazing uh, soy source and it's not high protein, but again, it comes from soybeans. It's been fermented and it's been shown to reduce so many um, diseases and, and been such a great benefit to, to human health. If you look at the Japanese um, and the quantities of uh, miso soup that they eat throughout their lifetime, it's it's a phenomenal food source. So I'm always fascinated. There's a, there's a great book out there, Blue Zon- The Blue Zones, which has been out for years, but finally got around to it, read it reading it during quarantine here and. Um, I, I find it fascinating to look at, you know, where are people living the longest? What are they eating? And uh, for those that want to look at that, I think that's a much better benchmark sometimes than just isolating uh, nutritional research. And you know, what what have people been eating over time, uh, and how do they, how does it promote health and, and longevity?
0: You make such a great point. That's such a great point about how soy, GMO soy in particular, is fed to livestock, and that's something that people often leave out of these, this commentary on soy and this villainizing of soy is like, well, if you're eating animal foods, you're getting many times that amount because it's concentrated in animal tissues.
1: You now the fact is, is, you know, you typically are, uh, <laughs> you're a you're proponent of whatever you eat. And if an animal eats a lot of you know, certain, uh, ingredients or certain food sources, um, there's got to be something left over in that, that animal flesh and what is in it. So and I think that's that's where, you know, science, it's really hard again to, to pick that apart. But it's, yeah, it's interesting.
0: Well, it's also the health of the animal, right? Because no animal was designed to eat soy. So you're giving that animal soy, you know, that's... The, a cow's digestive system might not be optimized for that.
1: Definitely. Yeah. And it's it's a fascinating issue of like what yeah you know, we feed. And then again, then people will say, well, I grew up hunting and fishing and wild game. Sure. like <laughs> the problem with wild game is a lot of people don't want to eat wild game because of the way it tastes. And you can get it to taste better for sure by, you know, marinating and, and going through a very uh specific process and it takes a while. But in general, um, you know, people have gotten used to what certain meat sources taste like. And I think that's where you know, you see these meat analogs uh, come into play of getting people like those tastes and textures that they want from meat, but getting them from plant sources. I think it's a great trend. Um, Is it the best for health? Probably not because it's heavily processed, but it does give people the, I guess, joy and satisfaction of eating some of the things they're they're used to. Because again, a lot of this is social, it's psychological too with food.
0: What advice would you have for parents whose children, because a lot of times this impulse comes from the kids and parents are like, oh my God, what do I feed my child? How do I make sure they're getting all their nutrition? Is there anything, I mean, you've really debunked the protein myth, but is there anything like vitamin B12 or calcium or anything that you would be particularly concerned about to ensure you're getting all the nutrients you need as a new vegetarian?
1: Definitely as a new vegetarian, and this goes for kids or for new vegetarian vegans. um, Vegetarians, you know, if you're eating... Um, whether it's eggs, or if you're eating uh, dairy sources, you will be getting some B12. But if you're fully vegan, uh, one of the big, one of the only things that you should be worried about supplementing would be B12. And some individuals even go as far as like, well, if you can get that from say the butt biome of soil that's maybe left over on a carrot. And if you're pulling out your your own carrots and your vegetables uh, from the earth, and you're getting some of that B12 from the earth, again, rather than try to think that you're getting enough, the the biggest issue is supplementing with B12. And the same goes with children. Um, We do give our children a a multivitamin, um, a vegan multivitamin that has in the biggest issue there is B12. And it has a few other antioxidants and B vitamins. But the biggest issue that I'm worried about or concerned about as a parent and somebody who's vegan would be getting enough B12. So on a daily basis, you should be doing that as a supplement. And, you know, that goes back to the argument of how Humans used to eat. I remember my grandmother. I, I used to love pulling carrots out of the ground, and um, you could get B twelve from other sources. And you definitely, if you're eating fortified foods, kids, of course, you know, love cereal or and love um, other things. Maybe you're you're getting an oat milk or a soy milk that's been fortified. So if you're eating some processed foods, chances are you would be getting a little bit of B twelve, assuming that. They're supplemented or they're enriched with uh, with B twelve, but in general, I think the safest bet is to to supplement that. Now, when it comes to iron or calcium, any of those other micronutrients, again, it, it would become down to like a personal case by case issue. You know, some women notice that their iron levels drop down whether they're on a vegan or a omnivorous diet, and that could be an issue. Um, calcium and zinc, most of the time, again, if you're eating a wide range of foods you're, you're probably fine so those that are worried I think a multivitamin is probably one of the the better steps for um, insurance of getting enough but um, the biggest issue is not eating too much processed food junk food high sugar high heavily processed fats and things like that where you're devoiding yourself of calcium and iron through green leafy vegetables or antioxidants and vitamin C and, and calcium and all these things that we know um could be issues. But the biggest there is, you know, eating more fruits and vegetables in their original whole state.
0: Yeah, that's that's so important.
1: Which isn't easy with kids. So I think with kids um you know you have to get creative and um again, getting them used to that and making it a part and making it fun, I think, is the biggest issue. And Sometimes you have to hide them. I know there's, there's some great recipes for, you know, incorporating sweet potatoes and carrots into mac and cheese and ways to to hide broccoli and sauces and things like that. So if your kid is a real picky eater, um, that's, you know, where you might want to go. But I think ethnic foods too are great. And stews, our, our kids love dal and Thai food and Indian food. And I think making it fun and, and building it around, like learning something about other cultures uh, can be fun too. But if you just give kids like, I could just love tofu, but some kids are just like they want more flavor and taste, and that's where you can get creative with marinating it and baking it and giving it a dis- different texture.
0: I love that. I mean, I was actually raised as a vegetarian child myself back in the '80s when it was not en vogue. So it's it's so <laughs> yeah. nice to hear you know that kids are able to have some fun with it.
1: And it's a lot easier for sure now. There's there's a lot of great and there's a lot of great substitutes out there from things like cheese. Like again, it you can actually get some pretty healthy dairy substitutes, meat substitutes that are at least better on the scale of of health, um, but that give people, you know, when they want to have cheese pizza, they want to have that, that same texture versus trying to replicate it with like a tofu, you know, crumbled type cheese or things like that. So, and again, it doesn't have to get expensive. You, you can avoid those processed or more expensive uh, food products um, and just eat, you know, beans and legumes and simpler foods.
0: Well, that is such brilliant advice for all ages to ease in, to make it fun and, um, you know, to really just enjoy the process of this healthful transition. So thank you so much for bringing all your wisdom and wealth of experience to us on Future of Food today.
1: Well, thank you. And yeah, I'd recommend everyone just have fun with it. And I'm a big proponent if you're headed in the plant-based direction, um, or even just trying to incorporate more fruits and vegetables. I mean, for me, I think getting people to eat more towards that plant plant-based direction is better than saying, okay, I've got to go hundred percent. So some people pick a day of the week, whether it's, you know, meatless Monday or, um, do it as a challenge. And right now with, uh, you know, people coming out of quarantine, um, we've had all these challenges going on, but, um, diet is a, is a fun one to, to create some of these challenges, get the family involved, get your friends involved. And, uh, ideally you're, you're improving your health too, as you're, you're doing those challenges. So have fun with it. And it doesn't have to be this diet of deprivation and again, really boring or anything like that. It's, it's a lot of fun. That's what I've enjoyed too, is the cooking element and all the different, exploring all the different foods, the recipes, um, those that are curious, my first book eat and run has 20 recipes in it too. So you can try some new foods. It was, the idea was to get people trying things that they might not. So when you notice like, what's this miso or what's this weird, you know, thing that I've never heard of before. Um, my, my plan was to get people trying different foods and uh, expanding their horizons a bit which I think is the fun part.
0: So cool. And, and so needed, especially during this time.
1: Definitely. Have fun with it. Well, thank you for having me.
0: So good to have you, Scott. Thanks again. Thanks for listening, everyone. Visit us online at futurefood.fm. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or listen to us wherever you get your podcasts and put the power to save the planet on your plate and on your playlist. I'm Ivy Joiveth. Future of Food is produced by Lee Schneider, music by Epidemic Sound. We're part of the Future X podcast network.